and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher, founder of Blackstock Consulting, and I'm joined by Richard Fretful, who is the head of KPMG Impact. Richard, fantastic to see you. Thank you for coming in. Now, before we come into KPMG Impact, you've had a, a long and illustrious career at KPMG as the guru of all things infrastructure. You've been involved with more long-term infrastructure projects than the Queen has cut ribbons. And I know you often joke that these things scope out the length and breadth of your career from the Thames Tideway Tunnel to HS2 and on all things in between. So before we come on to the impact part, can you give us a bit of a, a headline summary of some of your career up to this point and some of the things that you've learned as we look towards a new cycle of potentially a new government and lots of other discussions around infrastructure, technology and all the other things we'll discuss. Andrew, look, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be invited to have this conversation, though I have to say I'm a bit concerned about the long and industrious career point because it sounds like I might be heading into retirement. I have no intention of heading (laughs) anywhere into retirement soon, but you're right. So infrastructure has been uh, the reference point for my entire career until the last couple where I've pivoted towards a broader sustainability canvas and, you know, the big things that I've been involved in that I'm super proud of. Channel Tunnel Rail Link Project, Mersey Gateway Bridge, you've already referenced Thames Tideway and more recently HS2 and transport generally and the role of infrastructure in transforming lives. These are things I'm passionate about. Mm. So where are we now? We're in this weird vanguard, aren't we now, between wanting to change, some different technologies emerging, chatter around autonomous vehicles continuing, battery technology improving. But there's still a little bit of uncertainty, isn't there, really, around where things are going to land. But there's a huge amount of disruption that's likely to occur within cities if some of these changes to the way we transit people and goods around actually occur, right? There's a tremendous amount of change going on. Indeed, an infrastructure investor the other day said that their investment committee felt like an episode of Tomorrow's World because there's just so many different innovations and technologies and trying to work out which one's going to be dominant in the future is hard. But I think we should be super grateful that at the point that the world is trying to grapple with this enormous existential challenge around climate change, the technologies we need are coming to the rescue. Just imagine if we were trying to tackle 10 years ago the existential crisis we've got that is climate change. Over the last 10 years, we've seen this terrific drop in the cost of batteries. We've seen this terrific drop in the cost of solar. We've seen this terrific drop in the cost of offshore wind. And these have opened up these technologies at the scale, which means we can actually start to contemplate completely decarbonising the energy sector. But it seems that we're still going around in circles with the same conversations around building nuclear power stations that we were having back at the time you were advising Mr (laughs) Prescott. There are parts of this which are going to go round and round in circles, but if you just look at the giant leaps that have been made in terms of things like, let's switch to transport, take how quickly we've seen the adoption of electric vehicles, how quickly we've seen nearly every single major automotive company move to being, you know, either in production or on the cusp of production of electric vehicles. That wasn't even in contemplation 10 years ago. Mm, But they had to be dragged kicking and screaming inside, didn't they? It was only after naysaying Tesla for some time that they began to shift. It's only been with huge 
government interventions and tax breaks that these things have begun to shift. Yeah, well, they can see where the market's going. So again, if the price is dropping of the product and you can see the consumer market shifting, either just because of consumer pressure or because government regulation steps in in order to try to give it a bit of a push, then that starts to move us in the right direction. So two questions follow then. So from an infrastructure investment perspective... I'm interested in your views on where you see some of the opportunities. And then then a a different question really is how thinking around what we build in cities is going to be disrupted by all this stuff, or maybe it's not. So I think we could all see that the big infrastructure investment opportunities today lie in the technologies that lead us to a sustainable future. It has to be the technologies that sit, for example, in hydrogen, technologies that sit around further developments in the electrification of vehicles, technologies that sit around the digitisation of, for example, the networks that you need in order to be able to create, you know, smart grids and so on. That's where all the opportunity is going to lie. Hmm. And we're seeing quite a lot of huge plays, aren't we, from some of the big global investors into those sorts of asset classes? We are. In fact, I think there's far more pent-up money in investors that wants to be in those sectors. But there's a degree of caution at the moment, because if you take hydrogen, for example, I think the market is being held back because there just isn't enough scale yet for a true market to have developed. So it's all individual project investment decisions. And secondly, the technology risk that you referred to before is still really prevalent. So there's a degree of holding back just to be absolutely sure which of these technologies is going to be to the fore. Hmm. And again, in terms of how you price that, it's obviously quite a different play from what would traditionally be perceived as an infrastructure investment. Investing in a toll road or an airport is very different from taking a punt on a new technology that's much more of a venture play really isn't it than a risk off infrastructure yeah no, that's absolutely true so you know when i first started doing major infrastructure consulting the sweet spot was always you know the cookie cutter repeats so if you could do you know whole swathes of school buildings if you could do lots and lots of toll roads within a particular country it was tried it was tested you knew exactly what you were heading into but you're right what's being asked to the investor community today is to take deeper bets and of course at the same time we've seen the uh, margins for the sort of the commodity products drop down and down and down so there's a little bit of a draw from that end as well because if they want to access a sort of premium margin then they're going to have to take some of those bigger risks Mm. where's the money going to come from is it going to come from existing institutional pots should there be more of a role rather for government to come in and bankroll some of these early pieces much in the way that they essentially have done for electric vehicles by giving everybody massive tax breaks yeah i think government has to play a major role um, partly through policy in the way that you've just described and sometimes through putting money on the table in some sort of blended finance or other type construct or ppp or whatever it is some way of putting a subvention in and it remains the case in the infrastructure market pretty much everywhere that the early stage funding for project development is still the problem there still isn't enough money available that gets projects through that sort of initial scaling up hurdle to prove that they can then bring in the sovereign wealth and the other really low cost capital. And in terms of the cities piece, that's kind of going back to your transport love. What are we likely to see over the next 10 years when it comes to people using cities differently as transport changes? So how should buildings be reconsidered? How should city centres be reconsidered 
if we're going to have a landscape of autonomous vehicles of greater electrification is that going to change the way in which we have networks of warehousing and distribution set up how are we going to think about urban transit when again you're seeing in london for example the tube customers going through the floor in terms of numbers so I'm a bit of an idealist, so I'm really hopeful that we're going to see more livable cities at the end of this journey. And maybe it's a bit more than 10 years, but I think the scope for, in particular, autonomous vehicles to revolutionise the way that cities operate, the way that individuals live, the way that people travel. I mean, just imagine the day when you no longer have to waste that hour or more behind the wheel of a car in order to get into whatever you're... I mean, firstly, you might not even be going into the office because, of course, now you can just come in remotely to do whatever work you're doing. But if you do need to, then actually the travel time is useful time. But it also changes entire industries. Well, absolutely. People listen to this podcast every morning. <laughs> but it changes things like... You imagine everything that is a service becomes potentially mobile. So, for example, healthcare, you could have healthcare facilities which could autonomously move to where the demand is. So that relationship between fixed building infrastructure and mobile infrastructure can change. And it starts to blow your mind when you think about these sorts of things. But I think we should be able to conceive, because one of the Achilles heels of infrastructure is it's so inflexible. You have to dump all this concrete and steel, which, by the way, is deeply bad for the environment because the carbon impact and then you're fixed into something for a hundred years that doesn't work any longer Mm, but i mean we could do that now you don't need to have autonomous trucks for people to have mobile health facilities and when we saw during covid the vaccine buses that were driven around a bit like football teams driving around city centers with the fa cup you're driving around with a bunch of yeah, but it changes the whole economics when you no longer have a driver. So, they, for example, the whole economics of everything to do with the freight industry is transformed when 85% of the cost, which is the guy in the cab or the woman in the cab, is no longer there. Yeah, I accept that. But I think the economics are very, very different when you're talking about something like healthcare, where 85% of the cost will not be the guy or girl driving, but the actual substance of what's going on in the body of the vehicle right and i think uh, it's something else we've talked a little bit on this podcast before about how hospitals need to be reconsidered and why britain as a country needs to focus a lot more on community-driven healthcare, primary healthcare, how we use dentists pharmacists optometrists to provide a lot of the services that huge amounts of money is wasted delivering in hospitals. Well, that's exactly right. So, I mean, we're moving across multiple infrastructure sectors to a disaggregation. Yeah. So the assumption in the past was always the maximum efficiency is you make the hospital as big as possible, serving the biggest possible area, and then everyone has to go to it. The same is true of schools, the same is true of office buildings, so on and so on. Increasingly, we're being able to move to disaggregation. We have disaggregation of energy generation. We have disaggregation of healthcare provision Mm. and education provision and so on. And what's that going to then mean for investors is that going to create more opportunities or is it going to make it more difficult because i guess from a cookie cutter perspective thinking about the advisory world thinking about the risk management world it's very easy to say right here's my massive hospital underwritten by a 40-year pfi agreement that's easy i can price that here's your check off we go thinking then about lots of different smaller plays that are going to be quite bitty lots of different problems that occur with all that how are we going to align investor appetite interest and the need for that capital with this panacea of disintegration that you talk about so i think we, we disaggregation we, not disintegration yeah. we're, we're, we're get, <laughs> we, get, getting we, a bit of both though aren't we in, in the nhs certainly we've already seen infrastructure investors have to really 
changed their view of what infrastructure is over the last decade. You know, it used to be, you know, very straightforward. It was the physical infrastructure. And then the investor community started to recognise that their conception of what they're investing in needed to extend into this slightly more sort of amorphous, often an operational space of infrastructure. And I think they're just going to have to go even further in that direction. Mm. And I mean, let's go on to impact, to KPMG impact that you're the boss of. Tell us what that is, where it sits, what it does, who it works for. So KPMG Impact is the vehicle in KPMG that is helping us to serve all of our clients across everything to do with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. A lot of people are calling it ESG today. I don't care whether you call it ESG, Sustainability Impact. It's about everything that organisations need to do in order to transform themselves into purpose-driven organisations, ultimately helping the societies in which they exist in rather than only serving their shareholders. Mm. And how does that align? I mean, there must be essentially a bit of conflict there because some would argue that you're not really acting in a positively impactful way unless there's maybe some cost to it. And I think many people, consumers, business owners, investors, politicians, policymakers will look at a business and say, hey, well, if you actually had to put any money on the table to do this brilliant deed that you're parroting all over social media. So how do you align that, obviously, as a company that advises people on tax and auditing, how do you align that need to protect and act as that fiduciary soldier in the room protecting your client's financial health, saying to them, actually, guys, you need to do this. It might not be financially in the best interest of your business, but it's emotionally, socially, environmentally in the best interests of the world around you. So if we were to accept your hypothesis, Andrew, we're in a really sad place, aren't we? Because you're effectively saying all businesses, you have to either choose, you can either be a business and you can make money, or you can be an organisation that's doing good works. And we know... Well, I'm saying saying businesses are amoral. I'm not saying businesses are immoral. I'm saying they're amoral. I'm saying that the position of any listed company, certainly, is primarily to its shareholders. That's a statement of fact. It's not a statement of opinion. That was the prevalent view until the last couple of years. But I think that view is changing really, really rapidly. And going back to... The Business Roundtable Declaration in the US a couple of years ago stating so clearly that businesses could no longer work on the basis that they only exist for the benefit of their shareholders. They have to take on a public purpose dimension as well. And I think that boat's now sailed, actually. I think we're seeing the vast number of businesses that we're serving as KPMG across the world waking up to that recognition that they have to be a force for good. They have to, that's for their employees, for their supply chains, for their customers and so on. And customers are not going to let them do anything else because that's the other revolution we've seen. We've seen customer action. We've seen the money going towards businesses that are sustainable, as well as obviously the pressure from governments under policy and regulation. Mm. I mean, some of that I think people will accept. I'm not going to name any companies. I don't want to put you in any position because I've no idea how many millions of them that, that you actually represent. But if you think, again, my counter to some of that would be to point to major banks, major fast fashion brands, major food businesses, all of whom have quite questionable ethics when it comes to their supply chain, their staffing, the quality of the materials, the sourcing of their materials, yet consumers still use them. People will still bank with company X, they'll still buy fast fashion goods from company Y, in spite of knowing full well that they have very questionable approaches to certain things that we're talking about here. So there are plenty of businesses that are not doing the right thing today. They are not going to be in business in 10 or 15 years' time unless they fix that. I mean, we've already seen, even in the last year, this differentiation start to open up in the cost of capital for businesses that are sustainable from those that are not. We are seeing this 
aggregation of pressure coming through governments. The EU, the SEC, recently published its draft climate disclosures uh, requirements. The EU has got the CSRD requirement. There's going to be this multiple point of pressure on businesses that are not doing the right thing. They'll be forced to disclose in a way that they're not today. The greenwashing will go out the window because it'll become something where they have to come to a business like KPMG to provide the assurance that what they are saying about their impact is fair and true. And then they will really get the full weight of customer pressure on them. So how long until we get to a point where declarations around ESG are regulated in the same way that a large company talking about its profitability is regulated? Uh, To me, this is happening within the next five years at a maximum. If you look again at what the SEC has put out, they're talking about that coming into force within a couple of years. Same with the EU. And it won't take very long before that ripples throughout the entire world. Because, of course, what happens is when a major corporate business is required to make that disclosure, they in turn have to require every single part of their supply chain to do so as well. And that's one of the big problems that we talk about a lot on this podcast over the last nearly five years we've been doing PropCast and the spin-off podcast series. But one of the things we often talk about within the realms of the built environment and construction is the inability of a client, be that a large REIT or a developer, institutional investor, to have that full visibility across their supply chain. So Pension Fund X can come here and go, right, we're going to build a fantastic new grade A, Briam, outstanding office block with you know all the bells and whistles that one could want environmentally. But if your window supplier, if your dry lining contractor is replacing the materials that you prescribed with something not quite as clean and nice, how do you know? How do you control that? What can you do? So this is where we come back to this, you know, being saved, if you like, by the technology and digital revolution. Mm. You know, we are already starting to do major pieces of work where we're working with entire industries to provide a visibility across their supply chain. So give, give and, us an example, because this, well, this is a really fascinating topic that I'd love to go. We're not going to have time to go fully into it today. But if you can name sex and people, we can get on and have a separate session. But, but I'll stop interrupting, let you finish the point. Well, you'll be, you'll, you'll be happy to know that the particular example I can give you sits within the construction industry that you love so well. So we started partnering with the New South Wales government last year to put together a platform that effectively captures within a sort of blockchain type environment, a complete record of all of the components that go into a particular building. You can see this in a sense as a a response to the disaster of Grenfell. Hmm. What we need is to be able to have that complete captured visibility of all of the approvals, the authorizations, everything that shows that everything was done absolutely as it should have been. And today we don't have that. But the technology to do that, we have that today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the frustrations that many have watching the Grenfell inquiry unfold day to day and excuse after excuse after excuse and suspect no one will ever actually get locked up for that tragedy. What are some of the silver bullets we need to start firing when it comes to better measurement of some of the things that we're discussing? So when it comes down to this reporting piece, clearly KPMG and other big four firms stand to make a killing from providing this service that I'm sure you know will come to be needed at some point. But how are we going to get the data to produce the reports? So you're absolutely right. The first challenge that all organisations have is being able to gather the data and gather that transparently across the whole of their supply chain. 
to a level that is robust enough for them to be able to stand behind putting it out in the public domain. And it's a bit, you're right, it's a big issue for us as KPMG because in the same way as we have to stand behind the signing off, you know, the assurance we provide when we provide a financial audit opinion, we are anticipating that we're moving quite rapidly to a world in which we will also be expected to provide an assurance on the ESG disclosures of businesses. Mm. I mean, how, how can you do both? Because ultimately, again, to be fully independent surely there should have to be a separate maybe it's a bit early to have this particular debate but i'm interested to ask it while you're here that many would say well if you're providing the audit for the financials someone else should surely do the esg piece so that it's a truly independent picture well this is a live debate in europe at the moment but our position would be that there is a lot of sense into well firstly the expectation is that from the company's point of view the esg disclosure should be an extension of their financial disclosure to the same sort of standards of financial disclosure and my view is the consumer and our politicians should want that too because it's only if you get that same standard and consistency of disclosure that it's possible for consumers to be able to properly compare different businesses and to be able to pivot towards those that are most sustainable Mm. and then if businesses are going to report on that comprehensive basis then it would only make sense for that to be signed off by effectively one audit assurance business Mm. i mean are the big four the right firms to do this there have been a number of growing number of scandals in recent years that have rocked the sector not just kpmg and all your other competitors as well how are you as a sector as the the spokesman for that sector in, in today's podcast but speaking on behalf of your sector richard how are kpmg and its competitors peers whatever you want to call them responding and learning from some of the things that obviously have dented public confidence. So, I mean, we recognise for ourselves as an organisation, but also for the sector generally, that we haven't always got this right. And we, and indeed the other big four I know, are investing really heavily in the processes and the procedures and the policies and sometimes the technology that sits behind in order to be able to sign off as effectively as possible on a company's accounts. Mm. And as we extend that into the ESG assurance space, then, you know, openly we know it's only going to get harder because there's bound to be a period, as you've said, where the data's not perfect. And so we're going to have to sort of be as transparent as possible in just being clear about what part of this is really certain and which part of this is still to be improved. Mm. And from a KPMG impact perspective, what are some of the other firms that you're advising? What are some of the other examples of what good can look like? So, I mean, the brilliant thing about uh, what's happening in the world today is that there are just so many examples of different organisations who are, you know, seeking support in order to do the right thing in terms of the ESG agenda. So, for example, uh, we're working at the moment with IKEA around looking into human rights within their textile supply chain. We did some work with Philips where we helped them to develop what they called their purpose compass, which effectively then aligns everything that the business is doing to an ultimate purpose. We're working with multilateral organisations. So, for example, we've been doing some work over the last year in Asia-Pacific on behalf of the Asian Development Bank, where we're working with a number of countries to try to bring coal-fired power stations to an earlier end of life than they otherwise would have run for. Mm. And there's so many other examples too. But for me, the thing that's, and I think for my colleagues as well, 
it's great to be able to do things where we can actually see that there's a real purpose and there's a benefit to the planet and to communities from doing that work. Mm. I mean, IKEA is an interesting brand because, again, they've always made a big play from the sustainability of the timber supplies that they sell in their furniture products. And what are some of the learnings from that piece on human rights that could probably be adopted right across major elements of consumer goods, fashion, food production, other things like that? Well, so we're in the middle of that work still, so not talking to that one specifically, but in the generality, the first part of it is the awareness at a board level of what is going on through the entire supply chain. And that comes back to what you were saying before about the ability to gather data, the ability to be able to be clear on the veracity of that data, just the normal techniques of bringing everything together into one place and then being able to look at where there might be weaknesses in processes or procedures and follow that through. And what about the sanctions and the policy response? Because, again, those are all good points that I recognise, but many people would look at some of the huge scandals we've seen on human rights or supply chain issues, be that horse meat in school meals or or eight-year-old kids making people's seven-pound skirts for a fast fashion brand number two. Uh, And many would argue in those instances, Richard, the board knew full bloody well what was going on and simply thought, well, hmm, yeah, worth the risk. And that's why I'm so personally excited about where the disclosure requirement is going in society so you know in those examples the board may have known it but there was no requirement to disclose we are rapidly moving to a place where there will be a mandated There's requirement, a requirement by to government say whether you whether your lasagna is made from horse meat or not isn't there and <laughs> i don't know i'm not i'm not a food standards expert <laughs> but I, i'm an expert in well, having with a seven week old baby i trust me i'm an expert in, in tesco's frozen lasagna I'll, I'll leave someone else to comment on that but but thinking then about Again, as someone that's worked in government, Richard, how should policymakers be responding to some of these potential failings and misrepresentations when it comes to either something in supply chain or something regarding governance and environmental reporting? Should there be greater sanctions? So I think there's two steps to this. I think we're seeing governments being far more willing to require businesses to disclose across a broad range of the impacts they're having, whether that's in the environmental space or the social space. You know, we haven't talked, for example, about inclusion and diversity or circular economy, any of these areas. The expectation is that we're moving to a world in which there will be this requirement to disclose that is much more wide-ranging. And I don't think any of us expect it to be static. So in other words, I think the bar is going to keep going up on businesses. What they are required to disclose will keep becoming uh, more demanding. And the businesses that we're working with that want to be really leading in this space, I think have already gone beyond what you might call sort of ESG metric disclosure to starting to ask the question, how is their activity aligned behind the UN Sustainable Development Goals? That was the blueprint that the world adopted back in 2015 mm. for how we get to a world in which you know, everybody in the world can enjoy a sustainable quality of life. And so the acid test now for leading businesses in the space is what are they doing to contribute to that agenda? Mm. And what's KPMG doing? So KPMG is 
both doing things for its own account. So we published a thing called Our Impact Plan last year and then updated it again this year, which, for example, includes our plan to get to net zero by 2030, the way in which we're decarbonising the energy supply to our offices, the way in which we're going to be introducing a carbon price and so on and so on. So we're doing that on the one hand. But I think rightly, we also recognise that If anything, the more significant thing we can do is in the way that we support and serve our clients and also drive the agenda on some of these issues. Yesterday, of course, was World Oceans Day and we put out a whole swathe of stuff around the way in which we see the blue economy helping to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about the real estate sector, what three things do you think those guys could be doing now that they're not currently doing well enough? So firstly, I think the whole of the construction built environment sector has perhaps been slower than it should have been to really get across the uh, carbon decarbonisation agenda. And there's a real urgency to doing that. We know that big parts of the supply chain of that sector, we touched on cement and steel in particular, are material contributors to the world's carbon footprint. So there's an absolute urgency in terms of fundamental redesign in the sector in order to as far as possible, take those products out or make sure that they're being used in a way that's very, very low carbon. That's one. Mm. Secondly, we've touched on already as well, is the use of data in this sector. I mean, it's still the case that the entire sector is by standards against other industries woefully inefficient and has been woefully slow in order to adopt what I call a sort of technology revolution to stitch together the entire ecosystem of the industry. And I think that's an area in which they should be working much harder. And the third area is, I guess, the underpinning of all of this is the governance within the industry. Again, maybe because it's largely a cottage garden industry in its origins, there just has never been the sort of ecosystem governance in construction that there needs to be if we're going to drive some of these agendas forward at pace. Mm -hmm. A final question, just to bring things to a close. One of the things that I always scratch my head and and think about when I see cities and and governments, local governments, getting on Twitter and patting themselves on the back for decarbonising the local bus fleet or inventing a new tram and and, and suddenly making all the gas-guzzling dirty vehicles disappear where do they all go and why aren't we as a country when we're replacing fleets of buses trams or whatever taking a bit more responsibility for dumping some of this stuff into emerging world countries why aren't we being a little bit more honest about the full impact of these things and where the dirtier products go so i'm glad that you've asked this question because i've long been prodding this conversation in the industry around, as you say, what happens to petrol and diesel vehicles when they get taken off the streets of London. We know today the second-hand market is going to put them into the big cities in uh, Latin America and Africa and so on. And, and, and we just, we're not solving the problem. We're moving the problem into the emerging markets and it's not good enough. But I also like the question because I think it invites, it goes to the fundamental, which is we are asking businesses and we're asking the ecosystems of businesses within particular sectors to start to think about their entire impact on the world. And that doesn't involve just moving the problem around. It involves fundamentally dealing, in that particular case, with the end-to-end responsibility for the vehicles so you actually remove them from the planet rather than 
dump them somewhere in India or Africa. Mm. Richard Felfall, thank you so much for coming in. Lovely to chat. We could go on for hours. We should definitely pick up some of these conversations around supply chain. I'm absolutely uh, certain that that many of the people that we speak to regularly would very much uh, welcome a a discussion on some of that. So thank you so much for coming in. Some amazing thoughts there, uh, and we will absolutely share links to some of your recent reports and, and publications on the comments of the podcast but thanks again Richard uh, I've been Andrew Teach on Blackstock you can subscribe to Propcast on Apple Spotify wherever you get your podcasts from just search Propcast on Google and do continue to suggest wonderful guests like Richard that we can have on future episodes thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon bye bye